0: which means I'm repeating myself. I've mean, only been here for, for six years, and I've already repeated myself. But uh, it's just because it's such an important part of my life. And, and, and I recognize that just because it's important to me doesn't mean it's important to you. And I'm sorry about that. There's really nothing I can do about that except tell you what's important to me. This is, this is what God taught me, and I hope it's meaningful to you. I've had some good comments on the series so far. But this particular sermon is going to start out in exactly the same way of a sermon I preached on September 26th and 27th, those of you who want to check your calendars if you were here, if you were here, hang in there. I'm going to start there. We're going to move on from there. It's not going to be a repeat. We haven't repeated the whole sermons yet, so uh, that, that we're not doing that. So anyway, let me take you back in time to about June 2013. In June 2013, this was my German shepherd, not the wonderful, lovable Zion uh, who I have now. This was the dog I had. And this was a kind of a morning routine with me. What you can't tell from that is that's a deck. You can kind of see my knee in the one picture. Uh, this was every day, every morning, I'd go out, I'd sit on this deck, and I'd do my devotions. And the first time I'd been involved in devotions in my life, really kind of regular. And it was a very good time for me. It was a time when God spoke to me. Now, my dog here, Ninja, always went with me, not because he was at all a religious or righteous dog, but he knew after that we'd go play. So he's always willing to wait until the devotions were over, and that's how my day would start. Well, this particular day, God took me into a place in the Bible that I usually try to avoid. It's in Revelations. He takes me to his passage in Revelations, and I'm reading it, and I guess I was just kind of reflecting on my life so far. And I've talked about that in this series so far, about how I kind of grew up a preacher's kid. And so I kind of slide in and out of, you know, Christianity, and I kind of compartmentalize things. And, and it was really important to me to be this authentic Christian, and this is what I meant by that. Uh, where I didn't offend anybody so much they wouldn't talk to me. That's what I thought was important to me. I would have called it maybe being a moderate Christian, you know, because I've been around these holy rollers that I got mad at, and I've been around these carnal Christians that I just want to kind of be in the middle, that sweet spot there, you know, where I'd be approachable, but not so wacky that people thought I was crazy and not so far off that Jesus wouldn't think I was a Christian. I was trying to find that sweet spot, you know, kind of that little space between the American dream in God's plan. That's what I was looking for, because I still wanted to be part of the American dream. So I kind of lived my whole life like that, and that's, I guess, why when I came to this part in Revelation, I was a little bit surprised to see it, because I always thought Revelation was just scary, scary images. But this is part of the, the, the letter where he's writing to seven different churches, and each church actually represents a different kind of Christian for us. And uh, so this is, the, this is what he was saying to this, this one church. He says, I know your works, I know you're neither cold nor hot. I I could wish you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and I have need of nothing, and you don't even know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So as I was reading this, I was kind of thinking, hmm, this is kind of a harsh verse, I think, because he's saying that if you're kind of a moderate Christian, or you're a halfway Christian, or as he's calling them here, a lukewarm Christian, it's not a little bit good, it's horrible. Now, this word that he uses in here, you know, for vomit, uh, some, some translations use the word spew, and is a weird translation, and so I actually looked it up, and, and spew literally means, if you look it up, I don't want to get gross here on an evening, Saturday evening, but spew literally means to throw up with force. In other words, Jesus is saying, when I look at you, you lukewarm Christian, you don't just make me throw up my mom, in my mouth a little, you make me throw up, like, with full force, where I'm going to go for distance, not for stop. That's what he's saying here. It also can mean to be sick. He's like saying, you're making me so sick to my stomach to look at you that it makes me want to throw up. Now, here's the thing. I read that and I thought, man, That's harsh. I don't know, I, I thought, okay, so they're a halfway Christian. All right, I was there, I've been there. I kind of, you know, like to think maybe I'm not lukewarm, but okay, so I'm mildly warm. Whatever you want to say, a little bit hot, I don't know how you want to put where I thought I was, but I thought if that's where you, you're upset with people, why? Isn't it better than the people who are cold? That's that's always bothered me up the person, because they, at least they're trying, you know. I said, they're, they're trying, Jesus. I mean, why are you so upset with them? It seems to me that give them a little bit of credit for trying. Can't we just, okay, we can work with this, you know, and bring them along a little bit, teach them how to be a better disciple or something? Can't we come alongside them and build them up? Because that's actually what I always thought we were supposed to do. But Jesus is saying, no, no, this, this, is so, this isn't a little bit good. This is so bad, it makes me sick in my stomach. And in fact, I, I kind of want to throw up a little bit. And I was sitting there on, on, my, on my deck here with my German shepherd sleeping, and... And I had this like, chair that I used as a table, and I took my Bible and I put it down there, and I said out loud, Jesus, why are you so harsh with halfway Christians? I don't get it. Why are you so harsh, Jesus? I said it out loud, but I didn't expect an answer. I mean, the German Shepherd wasn't even paying attention, right? I certainly didn't expect an answer from God, but I got one. I know that creeps some people out when I say, Well, God spoke to me. What I mean by that is, I suddenly had this full thought in my head that I knew wasn't mine. Because it wasn't anything I was thinking. And I don't know how to put this. It was brighter than my thoughts. And I knew suddenly Jesus had spoken to me. So when I said to him, why are you so harsh with halfway Christians? He said this, because I didn't go halfway. the cross." And then he made it personal. He said, I'm all in for you. And I sat there and I realized I have now come across something that I, I refer to as the Jesus Razor. That's where this whole thing gets its title, the Jesus Razor. But before I get to it, let me explain to you where this weird term comes from. Because people ask me, what well, is a kind of weird title name for a series? What it comes from, because you have another say, I'm, I'm a geek, or I'm a techno nerd. That's my real job, I don't get paid to preach. My real job, I'm a techno nerd. And I deal with scientists all the time. And in science, there's this thing that's very well known called Occam's Razor. Some of you may have heard of it. Occam's razor was, this guy's name's Occam, and he came up with it. He came up with this in a time when science was kind of reinventing everything, you know, because they were just kind of going through this big revolution and they're going down all these rabbit holes because everything was possible now. And so he, they, were, they were just kind of wasting a lot of their time. And Occam's razor, uh, the best explanation I ever heard says this. Uh, if you hear this, it's probably not horses. I mean, it's probably not zebras, it's probably horses, right? The simplest explanation is probably the best. Zebras aren't coming. They could be, That could be a zebra, but it's probably not a zebra, it's probably a horse because the simplest answer is usually the right answer. That was Occam's razor. And believe it or not, that very simple little thing allowed science to cut away a lot of bad stuff and not waste our time with it. It gives kind of, could focus on that. And I realized that I'm sitting here right now and I looked at this thing and I thought, this is the Jesus razor. This is even more important than Occam's razor. Occam's razor will help you in science. This is like the fundamental thing in your life. Because the Jesus razor basically says this. Look, either Jesus is for real or he isn't, period. It's really simple in a way. You know, And I, I always tell people Christianity is a very simple religion. It's just hard to do, but it's simple. Either Jesus is for real or he isn't. That's it. It's that simple. Either Jesus is for real or he isn't. And I realize that God is challenging me. He was basically saying, Do you think I'm for real or not? I don't want you lukewarm anymore. I want you to step up. I want you to make a decision. Right here, right now, on this, on this deck, in the middle of Mount Vernon, PA, I want you to make a decision. Am I for real or not? And it occurred to me that either way you choose on this, it's going to change your life. If you actually live like you say you choose, that's the problem. See, in my job, I meet atheists all the time. I don't know why, but the tech world's full of them, right? They're always talking about how, you know, they refer to my religion as mythology or, you know, just kind of a fairy tale. And they're just so superior in all ways because, you know, they're, they're atheists and they've thought things through and they're scientists, you know. And uh, I, I used to always, like, defend my faith that I don't anymore, you know. When, when, when somebody tells me they don't believe in God, I say, oh, that's interesting. So you're telling me you don't believe in right or wrong. What are you talking about I said, well, you can't believe in morality then, right, if you don't believe in God. And they're saying, no, well, that's not true at all. You can be a moral atheist. And this is a group called the Four Horsemen of the New Atheist Movement. A bunch of old white guys sitting around pretending they're relevant. But uh, they wrote these books, and they were like a big deal. And they, they proposed this idea of moral atheism. In fact, it's more moral than Christianity. And I asked people, say, oh, no, you can be a moral atheist. I said, no, it's impossible for you to be a moral atheist if you truly believe that there is no God. You can't possibly be moral. Well, they get all mad at me then, which is fun, because then they're defending their faith instead of me defending mine. I said, no, no, no. And, and, and this is, this is and they, they try to say, I said, no, no, it's like, you're, you're saying more, you're moral atheist. is like saying I have a four-sided triangle. It's an intrinsic impossibility. You cannot be a moral atheist. I said, what do you mean by that? Morality needs a standard, just like everything else. That's why and, and, and you know this. You know this. If you're sitting right there, you don't have to be kind of a philosopher or a theology, a theology major or anything. You know that you need standards in your life. In fact, we just had these uh, stairs outside rebuilt uh, by a guy who comes to church on Sunday mornings, Zach. I don't know anything about him except he told me he was a commercial uh, carpenter and he'd like to do it. I said, hallelujah, hallelujah. You do it. You, know, I, you do it. I was not here when he built them. But I can promise you, without ever having seen I'll see Zach tomorrow. And I'm, I'm sure he's going to nod. I know there's a tool that he was using that day. It's something called a level. And in fact, the level actually measures two things: the levels, the, basically, the parallel being parallel to the ground, and then it also measures the plumb, which is being per- perpendicular to the ground. And since those stairs are both level and plumb, I know he was using them because you can't eyeball that kind of thing. In fact, I think the guy who built them before did. That's why they're all crooked. We had to replace them. If you're a good carpenter like Zach is, I'm, I'm sure he had that tool there. Because you use it, and the way it works is you put it up there and, and you test it, and, and, and if, if that board doesn't match the level, guess which one you move? Not the level. The level's right. You have to have a standard to compare against. If you don't have a standard to compare against, you don't know what's wrong. You have to have it. And in everything we do, we use standards. Uh, Victoria and I driving along, she's knitting away these days, she's working on all these different things, and all of a sudden she goes, oh. What's wrong? Well, oh, these stitches are all wrong. I have to go take them all out. She'll sit there and pull it back out, you know, so she can redo. How did she know they're wrong? Well, she knows they're wrong because the, the row before them were right. And she does those right because it goes all the way back to the pattern that she used to base everything upon. That's the standard. Everything has to look like that. Uh, I play guitar. When you pick up a guitar, you always check to see if it's in tune. If I have one of these six strings in tune, I can tune that whole guitar. But I have to have one that's in tune. And if I don't have one that's in tune, I need something else, like a tuning fork or one of those little tight uh, pipe organs that you blow in and gives you the note. Because I have to have some standard. I can't just use my ear. If I just use my ear and I I tune the guitar to itself without knowing that it's right, it may sound right when I'm playing by myself, but I promise you, I get in a group, it's always out. I need a standard to test against. And if there is no God who is the standard to test against, there can't be no morality. Now, what these guys did was they came up with their own rules of conduct, a little code of conduct, they put them down, this is what I live by. Well, that's fine, but that's legal, that's not moral. You can create your own laws. Society can create its own laws. Society does create its own laws. That's not morality. That's legality. Don't confuse those two. (laughs) Because there's immoral laws. There can be, certainly can be, certainly have been. There have been, in fact, In this very country, you know, 1776, it was completely legal to own slaves. Was that moral? No. But it was legal. See, all legal does, all the laws do, is it tells you, look, if you, we expect to society or whatever, this group of us, we decide this is how we want you to act. And if you don't act like that, this is what's going to happen to you. Right? Crime and punishment. That's it. And that's all law could do. The problem with it is there's no morality there. And if there is no right and wrong, if there is no God, then legality kind of gets a funny thing. In fact, really, after, after a while, being no right and wrong, it really just matters what you can get away with. Because if there is no right and wrong, you can do anything you want as long as you get away with it. What difference is, it All you're trying to do is escape the punishment. Some people, they don't care about the punishment. It's not a deterrent. Some of these football players, they get fined all the time. Why do they care? $15,000. You know? He made more money than that just running on the field. He don't care. It's no deterrent at all. Why? Because there's no morality there. Anybody who's driven faster than the speed limit here? Why'd you do that? Because you know there's no morality there. It's legal. And you know if you get caught, you're going to pay a price. Pennsylvania tried to use that as a deterrent. Remember that? He was driving the turnpike. It's a... Yeah, they put it up there, if you're going you know, 80 miles an hour, this will be your fine. You know? They thought that'd be a deterrent. It wasn't. People drive along going, I can afford that. You know? And then soon later, some guy goes passing you. You don't want them to think you're poor. You know? So you speed up. Pretty soon you're 155 miles an hour out of peer pressure. You know, that didn't work at all. So, uh, but that's all that matters. right? It doesn't matter what's really right or wrong. It's what you get away with. And here's a weird thing. When I start talking to people and I start explaining all this, I said, well, that, that, that's not right. I said, so you believe in right and wrong. Based on what? And they can't answer me. I said, well, if you don't think there's a God, if you don't think there's a right and wrong, why don't you live like this? Now, we've actually had people live like this. We call them psychopaths. And actually, we consider that a mental illness because we all believe there should be some kind of a thought that is right and wrong. Where's it coming from? Why do atheists live as though there is a God? If they tell me there isn't a God, right? That's one of the big things. Now, now, because I'm not an atheist, I actually know why they live like that. Because the Bible tells us, it tells us this in Romans, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse when they stand before him on judgment day. That's why. Because it's in our DNA to know there's a God. Now we can play games with that, pretend we don't know that, but we do. And God says, when you stand before me, I'm not going to count any excuses. Because you knew. The first time somebody did something to you and you said that's not fair, you knew there was God. Because fair is part of justice and part of Morality. So that's the the idea behind it. That's why I tell these people, if if you don't believe Jesus is real, why aren't you living like it? Why aren't you living like that? People don't want to live like that. People don't want to live like there's no right and wrong. They want to have a sense of right and wrong. But if that's weird, that atheists are living like they're Christians, why do Christians act like there is no God? Or else, and this is like, you know, maybe just the way I look at it, a lot of times Christians treat God like the crazy cat lady. You know what I mean? That lady that's got all these cats, and like they like pee all over her house and everything else. She goes, oh, she just moves them aside, and she doesn't care because he just loves these cats. They can do whatever they want. They can scratch her. They can you know, ruin her furniture. She just loves these cats. You know? I think that's how people think God is with us. He's just a crazy cat lady. He's a crazy human God. You know, the, we can just you know, pee all over things, and he doesn't care he just loves us anyway, uh, but that's actually not what he teaches. Somewhere along the way, I don't know where, the American church became all about faith. And we dissected everything down and we just made this whole thing about this thing we call faith. And, and the faith that we describe, you can't even recognize it from what the Bible talks about faith, but um, we, we say, you know, really all you need is a little faith. And what we mean by that is you just need to believe in your heart. You don't have to tell anybody. You don't have to ever say anything out loud. Uh, you don't have to live like it, God forbid. All you have to do, in your heart, know Jesus is really God, and you're going to heaven everything's fine. Somehow that got taught in the church. I'm not sure how, but somehow that snuck into the church. And, and you wouldn't if you just read the Bible. You know, it's amazing how we just didn't even bother reading the Bible. Because there's this, um, there's this passage in James where he, like, really breaks this down. James, by the way, is Jesus' brother. Uh, he really breaks it down clearly. Now I'm going to give you the Mark Rice paraphrase version of what James says here, and I'll show you the actual scripture. But in James 2, he says this, you believe Jesus is God, huh? Great, big, fat, hairy deal. Basically, I mean, he doesn't quite put in those words, but he basically says, big, fat, hairy deal. Uh, even demons believe that. Well, you want a, a meddle? Demons believe Jesus is God, he says. You think that's something special? No, and then he goes on and says, any faith that you have, you call it faith, it's not compelling you to do anything. Faith that compels you to do nothing is useless. The very famous verse that you may have heard, faith without works is dead. But James drives this even further. He goes, look, well, is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have any works? In other words, faith is, faith is necessary. I'm not saying works is necessary. Faith is necessary, but it brings you to Jesus. And then what? Well, then you're supposed to change. There's supposed to be evidence that Jesus changes your life. Faith brings you to Jesus, but you're not supposed to stay like that. That was just so you could come to him. But afterwards, he says, what good's it if you don't do anything? Can that faith save him? He's actually saying no. Faith by itself, it doesn't. Works is dead. Now, someone's going to say, well, you have faith. I have works. I mean, let's just not get along. He says, well, okay, fine. You show me your faith apart from your works. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to show you my faith by what I do. And he repeats it faith without works is dead. It's not enough. But just in this little idea in my head that Jesus is God, it's not enough. The Bible tells us it's not enough. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's the. I actually had a guy tell me this a couple weeks ago. He talking to me. He says, You know, I don't know if I believe the whole Bible, but I do believe the words in red. I said, Really? Hallelujah. Because the words in red are the ones that give me all the problems. You, know, you think Paul's tough. You should read Jesus. Jesus has no chill at all. He is just straight black and white, and he doesn't care. He tells the truth, and he just walks away. He doesn't care. If someone like, oh, I can't handle that, he, says, oh, okay. and he just keeps moving. You know, the rich young ruler comes to him. He tells him the truth. The rich ruler goes, I can't do that. And Jesus watches him walk away. Yeah, that's the red words of the Bible. You should read the red version of the Bible if you think that they're the easy ones. So, I just want to believe the red words in the Bible. Okay, well, let me show you some of the red words in the Bible. This is what Jesus Christ has to say about doing things. Not just the faith, but doing things. He says this, Jesus said to those who believed him, if you keep my word, then you truly want disciples. What does that mean, keep your word? That means do what he said. That's what it means. In fact, if you don't understand that, he comes back later and says this, if you love me, he will keep my commands. If you love me keep my commands so what kind of um what kind of community give them or put it other ways how how we do all those red words see because when i was sitting there on that deck that day i hadn't done so hot with the red words yeah a little bit here and there but i knew there was an awful lot of stuff that i was going to change about my life if i answered that question the way jesus was telling me. am i for real if i answered yes to that question i knew things were going to change because I knew I wasn't going to be able to live like, oh, I don't really know. Because Jesus is right in front of me saying, am I for real or not? Choose, right now, choose. Am I for real or not? You've had enough time to decide. I've been Christians for years. How are we doing with that? So um, last week, I preached a sermon. And we went into the red words of the Bible. And we talked about tithing. And uh, I, people are like, weird. I'm like, wow, why would you go to tithing? Just because we're talking about getting your heart right with God. And tithing is part of it. You know, what we do with our money matters. So, those were red words of the Bible. I showed you Jesus' words to Himself, where He said, You should tithe. He actually says, This you should do. I showed everybody that. So, I'm sure everybody who heard the sermon last week read home and wrote a tithe check, I guess, to another church, or maybe got lost in the mail. How are we doing with that? It's hard, isn't it? I mean, I, it was really hard for us to start typing. It took me years to get there. I understand. It's hard. It's very, very hard. I get that. But if you think tithing's hard, that's the easy stuff. How about this one? He's talking about forgiving people now. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, guess what? Your Father will not forgive your sins. Wow. He didn't put any kind of qualification on that at all. That includes my ex-wife up there. That includes everybody in my life. That includes my idiot boss up there. He's basically saying, everybody who does something against me, I'm supposed to forgive if I want to be forgiven. And you don't believe that. He says it again in Mark. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone else, forgive them. So that your father may also forgive you your trespasses, your sins. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. What he's saying is, if I'm praying to God. You know, that little prayer we say, our Father, art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, the next, next line Forgive us our sins. But the next line after that is as we forgive others. Forgive me, God, the exact same way that I forgive others. It's actually in the prayer. He's saying, So if you're praying that prayer and you realize, well, I haven't forgiven this person, close your mouth right now before you say those words. Don't tell God to forgive you the way you're not forgiving other people. Don't do that to yourself. He said, go forgive them. Doesn't say that. Jesus is clear on this. Pittsburgh, man, we can hold a grudge. We're like the Hatfield McCoys here. I actually know people who are holding a grudge generationally. Like on behalf of their grandfather, they still hold a grudge against a family. Man, we can hold a grudge. Jesus says, no, you can't. You're going to be my father. You got to let go. Oh, that's a, that's a hard teaching there. I think I'd rather give money than some of this. Right? Do you think Jesus is for real or not? Because this is what Jesus said. He says you have to forgive. Forgive or or what? Now, actually I'm gonna jump out of red words for a moment. I'm gonna talk because people are like I have a lot of people talk to me about this. Well, I don't I don't even I actually had somebody tell me, and this is bizarre to me. That nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to forgive somebody who doesn't ask for it. So they don't ask for it. And you have to forgive. Them. What Bible are you reading? Jesus on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they don't know not what they do. Now, one of the people who were crucifying asked for forgiveness. Jesus forgave them. This is unbelievable to be these little tiny gymnastics we play without theology. Uh, I don't have to forgive because they specifically me for it. No. Yes, you do. And the reason you have to forgive them. It's because if you don't forgive him, you give the devil control of your life. And this is what Paul fills in the blank for us. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. We use this a lot of time in couples counseling. In couple counseling, you'll hear this verse a lot. Don't go to bed mad, right? Don't go to and Actually, what Paul's trying to say here is not, is, don't go to bed mad, but don't hold on to anger. He says, if, it, if it's sunset and you're still holding on to anger, it's too long. But he tells us why. Do not give the devil a foothold in your life. If you don't forgive, you're giving the devil permission to come into your house because bitterness is the currency of hell. That's the devil there. He loves bitterness, he loves unforgiveness. Grace is the currency of heaven. So when, when you don't forgive, when you hold on to that hurt, And you hold on to that, and bitterness, and you just let it in, because it feels good, because it gets you angry. And sometimes, I just want to be angry for a while, you know? Maybe I'll forgive later, but right now, I I need this anger, because it's fueling me, or whatever you're saying. Whatever the excuse, I've talked to a lot of people with anger issues. They always have excuses. But you don't know what they did to me. No, but I know, I know really well what Jesus is telling you, and I know what the devil's going to do to you if you don't let go of that anger. And by the way, when you're angry at that person, they don't care. That's the weirdest thing about it. It's like drinking poison and expecting that person to die. They don't care. People are mad at people they don't even know about. I've actually done that. I've actually gone to people, you know, and and I've said, you know, I'm really sorry. I've harbored this anger with you, but they had no idea what I was talking about. I was sitting there holding on to this grudge. They had no idea what I was talking about. They didn't care that I was angry with them. But it is affecting my life. It's keeping me from being with Jesus. And Jesus says, let go. Is he for real or not? One more. Because this is, uh, this is one also hits kind of close to home. Uh, so Jesus is talking, and, and they're like saying, you know, well, which commandments should we follow, which ones we shouldn't? And he says, oh, please, commandments, those are easy. Let me tell you what they really mean. He says this, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I'm telling you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He ratchets that up. It's not bad enough I don't act act on it. He said, if I look at a woman with lust in my heart, I've already committed adultery, as far as he's concerned, because my heart has gone there. That's what he's saying. Man, it's really great that Christians don't ever lust, isn't it? Because we believe the red words of Jesus. We we believe that, and and so obviously we do that. And so we would never do this, any of the Christians. we, We would just never do this. I'm wondering then, how pornography is a $15 billion industry. Because you know there's some Christians who have bookmarked porn sites. The porn industry couldn't exist if they didn't have Christians lusting after the people. They could There wouldn't be enough money. It wouldn't be profitable. They'd be doing something else. This is actually a chart that shows that no one really knows. You know, they're guessing. If the low estimate, $6 billion, that's like right below the NBA, the mid-estimate is $15 billion, which is more money than anything. Look at that. More than Hollywood, more than Netflix, more than the NFL. You know what the high estimate is? $95 billion. That's more than all of them combined. Whew, good thing that Christian lost, huh? Because we believe the red words in the Bible, right? Jesus says it, we believe it. That settles it. But are we doing it? This is the thing, that... Sometimes uh, we, we, we kind of live this life, and it's a lie, but we don't know it's a lie because we've got, we think everything's under control. And then one day Jesus is going to stand in front of me and say, wait a minute, I told you. And what are you going to say back? I told you. I didn't know Jesus. I'm sorry, I didn't know that scripture. Why don't you know that scripture? It's not like we know the Bibles. It's not like we know churches. It's not like we don't have online services. I'll tell you what. Jesus is right. In the final day, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to stand up and judge us. They're going to say, you know what? We didn't have that, guys. We didn't have any of that. Yeah, okay, we were wicked and perverse and all that stuff. Explain how America's wicked and perverse. We know better. We were founded on Christian principles. We have the Bible. We have it on our phones for free. How is it you don't know what Jesus said? How is it you're not doing what Jesus said? What has your attention besides Jesus? For everything in the world, John, one of his best friends would say, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that doesn't come from the Father. That comes from the world. This world and all those desires are going to pass away, but whoever does the will of God, they'll live forever. See, if Jesus is for real, our lives have to show it. That's the Jesus reason we're bad as the atheists. Atheists act like, say there isn't a God and act like there is. We're saying there is a God and we act like there isn't. We're indistinguishable. We actually start merging them. In fact, I think a lot of Christians, honestly, they kind of, you know, a lot of times I've called, these people will be talking about things and sin in their life and stuff that they're kind of holding on to and really where the conversation is, Pastor, I just want to know how much sin can I get away with and still make it happen. Right? There is no right or wrong. There's just I right can get away with. That's all they want to know. How much of the American dream can I grab? How much can I ignore? Surely there must be something I can cross out of my Bible. That's all I need. I just need to know that. And um, Paul writes this. He says, I don't want you to be participants with demons. <laughs> you can't drink a cup of the Lord and a cup of demons, too. You can't have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. That's what we don't seem to get. That's the other side of the Jesus Razor. This side is you're saying, okay, I'm going to go all in with Jesus because he's all in with me. Putting all my chips in the middle of the table, I'm all in. Jesus did it, I'm doing it. Come on, Jesus, we're doing it. That's, that's that side. On the other side, you're just basically drinking with demons because that's what they want. They want you to hate. They want you to be bitter. They want you to be selfish and greedy. They want you to lust. And he says, I, I don't want you like that. And Jesus says this, look, you can't serve two masters. You just can't. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to one and despise the other. You just can't serve both God and Mammon. Mammon's the God of the world, by the way. A lot of translations say money, but Jesus said Mammon. Mammon was literally the God of the world. God agreed. See, either Jesus is for real, or he isn't. And the time comes when you simply have to choose. Would you please bear with me?